Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, it is living, it is active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And we understand if we allow it, it will separate that which is good and evil in our lives. And help us to recognize those things. And also, good doctrine and false doctrine, it divides that as well. And as we get into the word this morning, we pray that it would accomplish that as well. And we thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. There have always been love songs out there about falling in love and staying in love and falling out of love. It it seems to be the subject of all time. And being in love is a fantastic thing, and falling out of love can be extremely damaging. There's the romantic love, there's the love of food, there's the love of life, there's the love of money, there's the love of power, and there's the love of self. But the Bible declares what true love is, and in this particular chapter of 1 John, we're going to look at that. In 1 John, we are now in chapter 3, and in verse 1, if you take out a Bible and just open it up to that, even though it may be on the screen in front of you, it is good to follow along and get used to turning the pages. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, I have a question after reading this verse. Who remembers that song that we used to sing in church? There's one, two, three, four. Four people, that's it? Remember that song? We need to do that song, huh? Excuse me. Now, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. I've told you this uh, previously. We would take scripture and we'd make songs out of those scriptures. We've done a couple of those on Thursday night at the home Bible study. And it makes it so easy to memorize the scripture. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons of God. And it's kind of like a round and the women sing one part and the men sing another part. But it's, it's enjoyable to do that. If you can get a cd or mp3 of something on the scripture songs it will aid you in your memorization of scripture but the point is how great is the love of god you know there's great love like for instance the taj mahal the taj mahal was built because this one particular leader of islam who was over there he had three wives and his third wife he loved so much that when she died he built the taj mahal had tremendous love for her but he didn't have tremendous love for the builders of the Taj Mahal because it was said to be the greatest of edifices of its time and it should never be copied and so what he did is the artisans who built it he had their hands cut off so they could not build another one now you're always told how great the Taj Mahal is and how great his love was for his third wife But he doesn't tell you how bad his love was for the artisans who built it. And so there is a standard that the world holds for love, but then there is a standard that God has for love. And there is no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, he makes a couple of points here. First of all, we are not all children of God. Secondly, the world does not recognize that we are children of God. Third, being children of God means we will be transformed into his likeness or the likeness of Christ. And fourth, being children of God causes us to want to purify ourselves. Now, that first point, we are not all children of God. There are people who are out there, I've heard it several times, that would say, we are all children of God. That is not true. That's a false statement. You can only become a child of God by requesting it. You have to be born into the family. Just like the family you were raised in, you were born into it. But in that family, you didn't have a choice. You didn't get to sign up and say, okay, I'm choosing to be born. And there's nobody that can come and tell you, well, that was really the case. You just don't remember it. It's not the case at all. You didn't have a choice in your birth into this physical world. But into the spiritual world, you have a choice. You can say, yes, I want to be a child of God. And why would he encourage you or tell you that you are becoming something if you were already, in fact, that thing, which is a child of God? Not everybody is a child of God. There are some people, Scripture even says, that are children of the devil, right? So there are children of God, and there are children of the devil. First John 1 John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a will of the husband, but born of God." And there are children of God, as I said, and children of the devil in Acts chapter 13. And by the way, as I'm giving these scriptures, if you have a pen or a pencil, you can write in the columns of your Bible, you can write these scripture references and it might be helpful to you. Or if you go on to the website, you can also listen to the message again and get the scriptures to confirm what is being taught. In Acts chapter 13, verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So that's just to make a distinction between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Now, out of all the people you know, you should be able to look at them and say, Child of God and child of the devil. Now, you might think a two-year-old is a child of the devil. <clears throat> I, I just sent my wife this morning a little uh, email on uh, toddlers, and it just showed all these different pictures of toddlers crying. And they were crying for the most ridiculous of reasons, like there was no more cake because he ate all the cake, and he's crying because there's no more cake, you know, and that's why a toddler cries. And so there are children of the devil and there are children of God. I just want to stress that point a little bit because there needs to be a differentiation as far as how we view the world and how we view ourselves. 
Now, you want to ask yourself, are you truly a child of God? Have you ever seen somebody give birth to a mini-me? You know what I mean by that? When the child is born, you look at them, and they are the spitting image of one of the parents. And when they grow up, they, they are just it. They are the exact replica. Like, for instance, uh, Drew McIntyre had been talking to his son, Mark, who was a pastor of Calvary Chapel Alpine. And he doesn't look exactly like his dad, but if you close your eyes and you listen to his voice, he is the exact replica. The tone, the inflection, the mannerism of how he speaks, everything is Drew. It's, it's just exact. Also, uh, John Corson of Applegate Christian Fellowship, he has a son, Peter John. Peter John taught once at the... Uh, pastor's conference and it was the same thing the uh, bellicose laugh everything that was involved in his life as far as speech was concerned made him an exact replica of his father and all the pastors started laughing hysterically because they knew he was john corson's son and it was just kind of uncanny how much you could tell he was and so you have to ask yourself are you an exact replica of Jesus Christ. If they look at you, do they see Jesus Christ? Just as they look at Jesus Christ, do they see the Father? And do they look at us and do they see the Father? Do they see everything that Jesus would have done? That's how you can tell if you're a child of God. We're supposed to do our own assessment of ourselves. Now, we look at other people not in a a way to judge them and be critical of them or slander them or gossip about them. We're supposed to examine them kind of like a fruit inspector what is the fruit that they have in their lives are they dedicated to jesus christ and nothing can deter them from that because jesus was so dedicated he gave his life do you offer your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto god as the book of romans says or do we say no i don't have quite time for that do you devote yourself to the apostle doctrine to prayer to the fellowship of the saints and the breaking of bread If you did that, you'd be just like the apostles who are definitely children of God. And so this is for us to examine ourselves. And you have to ask, am I a child of God or am I a child of the devil? And that comes to being bitter and holding on to unforgiveness and being rude and all of those things. Is that a character trait of our lives or is that something that just pops up occasionally because we're still in this body of sin? That's for you to discover for yourself. Secondly, the world does not recognize that we are children of God. Back in verse 1, in the first half, it says, The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So they will never turn to us and say, "Ah, You are the son of the Holy One. Well, spiritual son, speaking that way, they don't even recognize that. They don't care about that. No matter what good deeds are done, they would take you and your Christian faith, and they would call it, a hateful religion now i don't know if you've been following this culturally but first of all if you are to say that um, gay marriage is wrong you are hateful because after all who is for love now where is that going to eventually lead i believe it is going to lead to the word of god is hateful and if you follow that you are a hate-filled person and everything to do with christianity is hateful and we don't have really a leg to stand on because you have the muslim religion which wants to kill the christians you have the secular world which doesn't like religion at all that points to christianity and says christianity is just 
hateful. Look at all the things that they did. And I'm going to remind you of this. I did a few weeks ago. But remember, they will point to the Crusades and say that the Crusades were terrible things that the Christians did. And war is, as they say, war is hell. And it is. But the Christians started the Crusades in a response to stop Islam and radical Muslims. That's why they came in. They, they were pleaded for. Uh, they were requested to come in and stop the advance of Islam because they were beheading and impaling Christians. And that's still going on today. Just keep up on the news in Sudan and some of the countries in Africa. Boko Haram is carrying that out even probably as we speak. Number three, being children of God means we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now, this one is kind of interesting. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because as you know, there is what is known as the rapture. Again, those scripture references are 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. And what that says is we will be transformed in the flash and a twinkling of an eye and we will go to meet the Lord in the air, which means you will be here one minute when the rapture happens, if we're still alive. And the next, it's not even going to be a second. We are going to be instantly teleported, transported to another place in the sky, in the atmosphere to meet Jesus Christ there. And from there, he will take us to heaven. Now that is the rapture of the church, but we to be transformed we cannot take these bodies to heaven these bodies are so corrupt that god deemed we would all die as a result and that's the curse that's upon us as we grow older we eventually get sick and we eventually succumb to the natural processes here in this life it was not supposed to be that way but because of god's judgment he said your body will not inherit the kingdom of god he says he'll give you a new body, and our body will be just like Jesus, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, this is the rapture. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash and a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And Philippians 3.21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So our physical bodies that we have will be transformed. Now, it'll be a brand new body. You ever get a brand new car? It has that new car smell. And you're going to get this new body and you're no longer going to smell. You're, you're, you're going to have this body that is just going to be flowery and wonderful and it's going to be radiating from the inside. It is going to be a fantastic thing. And we're going to turn to each other and I'm going to say to you, look at you. And you're going to say, no, look at you. I go, no, look at you. And we're going to look great. We're going to be perfected. Now, I don't know if that means more hair, straight teeth, taller, shorter. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if it means that we're... Uh, and I believe there are the nations that dwell on the earth in the millennium, but I don't know if we're going to be of one nationality or he's going to maintain the pigment in our skin, whether we are dark or whether we are light. I have no idea what that is going to be like, but I do know a couple of facts from Scripture that tells us what our bodies are going to be like. Now, first of all, we have to have a changed body in order to dwell with God. Because if we dwelt with God without this changed body, we would be consumed by His holiness because we are evil. 
Now you might say, how do you know this? I thought you'd never ask. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, this is where Moses wanted to see all of God's glory. Not just see God, because I believe he talked to God as a man talks face to face with someone else. And so I believe it was a, what's called a Christophany, where Jesus appeared in the Old Testament in the tent of meaning, or at the burning, burning bush. I believe the bush is burning, but Jesus' presence was there, and he was communicating with Moses. But Moses wanted to see God in all of his glory. And God said, you can't. If you saw me the way I actually am, God told Moses, you would die. Now this is recorded for us. And again, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20 says, but he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Now, previous to this time, we cannot exist in the presence of God because of our sinfulness. But when we have our new bodies, we will be able to. And so what he did is he took Moses and it says with his hand and he put him in the cleft of the rock. Now, I have a tendency to think that that's metaphorical. When was the last time in a valley somebody had the strength to pick someone else up by their hand and just stick them into a, a rock somewhere? I, I think it's metaphorical. I think God just lifted him and stuck him in the rock. And he said, I'm going to keep my hand over the cleft in the rock until I pass by. Which, how big is your hand? Is it as big as a person? No, it's not. So somehow he covered the cleft of the rock. And then God went by in all of his glory. Now, the brightest thing that you can think of would be going by has something ever been so bright that you close your eyes and it's still bright and then you put your hands over your eyes and you can still tell it's really bright out there and it hurts to actually look at it well i'm sure when jesus went by in this christophany that's what happened this glow now i don't know if it was humming as it went by i don't know what it was like but it was bright the brightest thing that you can think of that's where Jesus went by. And as he went by, it is said that God told Moses, once I go by, you can look at my backside. You cannot see my face, but you can look at my backside. And so that's what happened. He let him out of the rock, and as God was going away, he saw the backside of God. Now, you remember the story when he went down to the people? What was the problem when he went down from the people? He was radiating himself, right? He didn't need a flashlight. He could go down at night and he could see everything because he was the flashlight. He was gleaming towards everyone out there. And when they saw him, what did they do? They freaked out. And so what did they have him do? Put a sack over your head. That, they put a sack over his head so that gleaming, you know, and it didn't go away right away, but it, it kind of dissipated after a while. Well, we're all going to reflect the glory of God like that once we become shining like the stars in heaven. And God actually said that. Now, our bodies will be eternal. They'll be glorified. They'll be strong. And they'll be spiritual. All four of those things are commentated, talked about that. It'll be eternal, everlasting, non-fading, incorruptible. It'll be glorified without defect, without blemish. Uh, Also strong, containing the Holy Spirit who is omnipotent. And spiritual, no longer possessing the natural body's appetites. In other words, you won't have to eat. But guess what we're going to do? We're going to eat. And, you know, all the pleasures that we have as far as the joy and the companionship and all of that, I believe we'll experience that even more fully. Uh, God is the God of everything that is good. 
Now, there is laughter that is good. Have you ever laughed so hard you started crying? <laughs> I, I think that God is going to have the best jokes, that he will tell us some one-liners, and we will just roll over. We, we won't be able to stop laughing for probably, I want to say, 100 years. I don't know how long it'll be. But it, it will be joy-filled. Once everything is completed, it will be such a great place to be. Everybody is going to be happy and filled with joy. Also, your body will have a new name written on it. Revelation 22 verse 4 says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, if you remember anything about the Antichrist, he causes those both great and small, rich and poor, to receive a mark that they might not be able to buy or sell without the mark. Where does he put the mark? On the forehead or on the back of the hand. He's such a copycat, isn't he? God is going to put his name on our forehead. Now, for those of you who are sci-fi buffs, you probably remember Stargate, the series. Yeah, and what did they have on their head? They had an emblem up there of their leader or their God. <clears throat> and so we're going to have something like that. I don't know what it's going to be like or what kind of um, manner or shape it will take or if it's just light. I have no idea, but there is going to be this idea that there's going to be a mark on the head. Also, we will wear white robes. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 and 7 verse 13. Three, or 4 through 5 says, we will walk, or they will walk with me, Jesus is talking, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. And Revelation seven thirteen through 14 says the same thing, that we are going to have white robes. So we are going to be gleaming we are going to have a mark on our foreheads. We are going to be strong. We are going to be eternal. We are going to be spiritual. All of these things are going to be part of our makeup. It says we will shine like the sun, Matthew chapter 13, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So that is the characteristics that are listed in the Bible of what we are going to be like. One final one that I like to throw in there is um, <clears throat> Jesus when he appeared in the upper room. Characteristics about that. The doors were locked. He didn't walk in. He materialized. He just is instantly there. In other words, he didn't have to walk to get to where he wanted to go. He could, but he didn't have to. If Jesus' resurrected body is like that, imagine what your body can be like. And I don't think we're told the half of it. I don't think we're given all the information. I think we're given just enough to be enticing. How smart do you think you'll be? You will be so smart. 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 You'll be so smart. You know, some of you will think uh, you're smart Alec if your name's Alec. But you, you will be so smart, you won't have to be taught anything. And whatever God wants you to know at that time, his Holy Spirit is in you, you will know. Just like Jesus Christ, whatever God wanted him to know, he knew at that point. It doesn't make us omniscient as we talked about in the home Bible study. But God will allow us to have any information at any time, anything we need to know, and he will allow us to use that. So whether we're teleporting, we're going to be real smart, we're going to be wise as well. Uh, you will be able to use the information that God gives you in a way that is wise. A lot of people go to school 
and they get a lot of education, they get a lot of knowledge, but they have absolutely no common sense whatsoever. And we will have common sense. All of us will have common sense. Our bodies will be perfected at that point. Now, with that description, let's review. We are not all children of God. The world does not recognize that we are the children of God. Also, being children of God means we will be transformed into his likeness. And being children of God causes us to want to purify ourselves. This is the last point in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, it's like being an athlete. Being an athlete, do you want to get up, if you're a runner, do you want to get up and go run 10 miles? Well, probably there are times that you do. But if you're feeling a little under the weather, do you want to get up and run 10 miles? No. But do you do it because you're an athlete and you're competing for the Olympic Games? Well, probably. You just get up when you don't feel like it. Even for us, you know, going to the gym. Do you go to the gym? I have a membership, but I haven't been in a year. You know, I really don't want to do it. I don't want to go there. And being a Christian, we have this battle, and I'll, I'll park on this for a minute. We have this battle that takes place. This battle of the things that the flesh wants to do as opposed to the things that the spirit wants to do. And the two are contrary to each other. And just like in the movies and the cartoons where you have the little guys pop up on the shoulders that look just like you and one's the angel and one's the devil and they battle it out back and forth. That's what happens in your mind. Remember a few months ago I told you about the little fender bender I had in a parking lot. It was at night. Remember that? And... I, I was backing up because these other cars were there and it was dark and I backed right into a minivan and it put a little dent in the bumper and remember what I was battling with? What was it? My instant fleshly reaction was leave. Just leave. Nobody will know. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I can't do that. And then it came a second time even stronger you leave now, you know, and, and I, I, I had to fight it. I, I just struggled with it. And even as I'm writing out the note, you know, I, I thought to myself, I could just write the note and say, sorry, (laughs) but I couldn't do that. I had to leave my name. I had to leave my telephone number. They knew who I was, you know, and, and that was the only car parked there that was waiting there besides the other two guys. And, And so I struggled with that. Now, we will struggle with things in our lives. And we'll get this inclination of the flesh to do that which is contrary to what God wants for us. And he gives us the power to overcome. We have the power. We can subdue that. But a lot of the time we just say, no, I think I'm just going to go give in. The kingdom of God is within us. Luke chapter 17 verse 21 says, it also says that, in a few other places in scripture. But James 4.1 tells us that this battle, why are there quarrel and fights among you? It's because you have and you do not get. You want something, you kill and covet, but you still do not get what you want. And so you have this battle that goes on inside. It says specifically in verse 1 of James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, there's a raging battle over to fulfill the desires of the flesh, over fulfilling the desires of the Spirit. And God gives us the strength to always win. And he always provides for us a way out of temptation. We know that from Scripture. But unfortunately, 
our flesh wins out a lot. Now we think, and this was misconstrued, it talked about this in Colossians, that we think that if we treat the body harshly and we just pray, 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 and we go to church, go to home fellowship, we're at church four nights a week and we're studying our Bible three hours a day, that that will strengthen us because we're working under our own power to become more spiritual. It will strengthen us against choosing the way of the flesh. And the Bible says, nope, sorry. (laughs) What do you mean? Oh, come on. It's just walking in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So we think if we fast and we pray and we give and God, why haven't you given me victory in this area yet? You know, it's in God's timing, but he provides for us the way out and we are not always successful, but we have to recognize it will always be a battle as long as we are alive, right? Now, illustrate this a little bit. Last night, I've I've gained about six or seven pounds. Yeah, it's true. I know. It's six or seven pounds. And last night I was thinking, no, I'm not going to have anything for dinner. I just need to to do my study and and show up tomorrow. Well, I couldn't. I had this spinach lasagna sitting there. And patty asked me do you want some spinach lasagna and just for a split second i'm going yes no yes no okay (laughs) and so i you know i ate it it's it's battles like that mostly that take place it's the little ones and then they start stacking up and then they manifest themselves around the waist and and so you you have to take all of these battles and it, it can be with diet it can be with language it can be with business it can be with your personal life it can be with all of those things and they're split second decisions normally they're not usually these raging battles these epic uh wars that take place in our minds it's these little things that come along and they're constant and they build up and we look back and we say i'm such a failure well god looks at us and says you are but it's okay I still love you the way you are and I'm still going to give you the grace because you recognize it. You recognize that you're a failure. That's, that's the battle right there. You recognize that you're a sinner and therefore God will give you his grace. And he goes, it's okay. You're going to have a new body. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to turn all this around. You just have to be patient. So that's what's taken place. Now, we desire to be more pure and to be more holy this idea of being sinless as a child of God. Let's go on in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 3. Now, this is what I alluded to last week. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him, oh, here it is, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right 
is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Okay, so there's a pretty good indictment for all of us right there. When you become a Christian, it says you cease to sin. Now, for those of you who have become Christians, is there anyone in here who is perfect that has not sinned? There's one. Okay, that's sin of lying, right? <clears throat> this, there's always somebody who raises their hand. Last time I think it was Nate. Nate raised his hand or something. And so we all know that since we have gotten saved, being born again, John tells us that, being born again in John, that Scripture tells us in First John we shouldn't sin anymore. We should cease practicing sin. And so this particular set of verses here has caused a lot of consternation, a lot of frustration. And there are groups of Christians that will come out and say, you sinned? Obviously, you not, must not be saved. You must not have the Holy Spirit in you because obviously you're given into the flesh. And you don't have to. By his power, we have overcome. And therefore, there should be no remnant of sin in your life whatsoever. You need to repent and get saved. And so you go forward again, or you say the sinner's prayer again, and you go home that night, and on the way driving home, you yell at somebody and maybe say a cuss word at them as they're driving down the road, and you just violated Colossians chapter 3 that says, let no filthy language proceed out of your mouth. You are in fact still, as some would say, unsaved. You haven't gotten saved. You don't have the power of the Spirit. And therefore, you walk your Christian life under this cloud of condemnation. You say, well, how come they can get it right? Do you know anyone besides Jesus Christ who is perfect? Besides Patty, do you know anyone who is absolutely perfect (laughs) besides Jesus Christ who is here in this life? And if you said yes, well, you just don't know them well enough. Once you get to know them well enough, you will see that they are just a sinner like anyone else. Maybe their sin is overt, maybe it's covert, but they are a sinner just like anyone else. So at first glance, it would appear that if you believe you eventually stop sinning or you come to this point where you don't sin and people say that that is true and others would bring condemnation if you do sin, yet Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you decide if that's exactly what it's saying? And this is one of those scripture verses that you have to be careful on. Now, those of you who have gone through any of the classes or been around long enough, you know that I bring up a couple of scriptures that talk about the wearing of the hat for a man in church and also that wine... Excuse me, wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything in Ecclesiastes. Now, it actually says that, but is that true? If you read that for the first time, knowing what you know about Christ and Christianity, and you said money is the answer for everything, you would take a step back and go, wait a second, the love of money is the root of all evil. Why is money the answer for everything? I could get to love money if it would just answer everything, so therefore I'm going to pursue money over everything else. It's the answer, right? Well, that's poor doctrine. Even though that's what it says, that's not what it means. And you can find out that's not what it means by looking at the negative. Now, you follow me on this? It, it says that you will cease to practice sin. If that's true, I need to look at the opposite side of that. Does Scripture declare that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? That is true. Except for Christians? 
No, it doesn't say that. And so we know that on the face, what it is saying, what it appears to say, something's wrong with it. And so you have to start digging as to what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christians aren't sinners. Because Scripture already declares very plainly that Christians are sinners. Now, this also came up. I believe it was John Wesley that came up with this doctrine of perfection. And follow me for a minute on this. The doctrine of perfection teaches that can you go for 10 seconds without sinning? I'm watching the clock. Some of you just blew it, but most of you made it. 10 seconds without sinning, right? Okay, let's extrapolate this out. Can you go 30 seconds without sinning? Yes, you can. Can you go an hour without sinning? You might go, if I'm here the whole hour, I think I can manage it, right? So you can go a whole hour. Well, if it's true, if you can go an hour, can you go half a day without sinning? Well, if you follow the line of reasoning, you can follow it to where it says you can live a life without sinning. This is called the doctrine of perfection. Now, sometimes it's misunderstood and what it actually connotates for the life of the believer, but it's this idea that you can live a life without willingly committing a sin against somebody. There's still this idea of the acts of omission, that you failed to do something because of lack of knowledge and therefore you need to ask God for forgiveness. But this actual act of committing a sin it is theorized that you can go for a period of time and not do it and actually turn into a life. Now, let me ask you, in your own opinion, were the apostles sinners after the resurrection? They were. Who in specific sinned that the apostle Paul confronted him? Remember? Peter. Peter the apostle who is claimed by some to be the first pope, was confronted by the Apostle Paul because when certain Jews came from James, he decided to start taking up some of the practices of a Jew in their ceremonial life. And Paul said, what is this? You actually live like a Gentile, and you proclaim that people need to live like Jews, and you command the Gentiles to live like Jews. And Paul said, I confronted him to his face, which would have been a sin. He was committing a sin. And so the apostle Peter, after the resurrection, was confronted by the apostle Paul that he was actually committing a sin. In the Old Testament, how many Old Testament saints do you know? And I call them saints, but Old Testament believers, those who are part of the the group that is called the wife of God. How many of those actually sinned? For instance, was Moses a sinner? He was a murderer, right? Not only that, after he was saved and he was the prophet that was the head of the nation of Israel, why didn't he enter the land? Because he sinned against what God had commanded to him. He was told to strike the rock once, but he struck it twice. He did something that he wanted to do all by himself. And God said, therefore, since you have done this, you will not enter the promised land. So even after he was following God, he was still a sinner. Now, some would say he didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so he couldn't do it. Well, we know that the Holy Spirit would come and go in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us and will never leave us. Now, is there a time that I think the Holy Spirit left Moses? No, it's not recorded that 
he ever did, that the Holy Spirit indwelt Moses, but he still did this as a work of the flesh. And you can argue about that. What about King David, who is called a man after God's own heart? Was he? Yeah, he was a sinner too. What did he do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He committed murder by murdering Uriah, the wife of Bathsheba. Remember putting him at the front of the campaign, the war campaign, and having everybody pull back, and he was the one that got killed. He was a total sinner, even though he followed Jesus Christ. So both Old and New Testament, the pinnacle of those of the faith, they were sinners, but God had grace upon them. So obviously, something was up. If they had the Holy Spirit, whether resting on them or indwelling them, there was still this idea of wanting to sin. Well, what about practicing sin or a habitual sin? I will ask you this question, and we to the answer of this particular problem that we're faced with by going through the scripture and examining it and also by reason. I've said this before too. There is uh, four ways that we determine doctrine and practice in the church. There is history, reason, scripture, and tradition, right? In Calvary Chapel, what's the top Scripture is number one. We turn to Scripture. If there's a practice that's supposed to be taking place, we would go to Scripture to reaffirm that. Secondly is reason for us. And the the third and fourth one, sometimes we vacillate back and forth on. But every church does this. Every group of Christians does this. But we go to Scripture first to see which one or which doctrine we should follow and which one is correct. And so when it comes to this, we're going to go to a little bit of reason as well. Let me ask you, have you committed a sin, one particular sin, more than once since you've been a Christian? Okay, we're all in agreement. We all have, right? How about four times? Um, How about a dozen? Maybe even hundreds? Okay, so we're all guilty, right? So it says you cease to practice sin. And one of the commentators that I love, he says, it means you, you don't go back to the sin over and over and over. And I'm going, no, wait a second. That, that can't be what it means. There must be some other definition. Otherwise, we all need to repent, get saved today to make sure that we're saved and then leave here and never practice that same sin again, right? I don't think it's going to happen. It's just not going to take place. So it can't mean that you don't repeat a sin or you don't have a practice of sinning. Now, for instance, Jesus was condemning even the leaders of Israel in John chapter 8, verse 7, and they would have been the ones who would have been following God. Of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees were a corrupt bunch. But when it came to the stoning of the woman caught in adultery, It says in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And nobody threw a stone, which means they agreed they were all sinners. Okay, so we're, we're finding a common thread through this. This idea of cease to practice sin. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now this is the same guy that's writing chapter 3. In chapter 1, verse 8, he's telling us, if we claim to be without sin, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. We're not saved. But in chapter 3, it seems to say, we're going to cease to practice 
sin. Well, what about this one as well? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. There are going to be churches set up as God designed it to be with elders and deacons, and that's supposed to run. That's God's design for the church. And those who are in positions of leadership, if there's somebody who is caught in a sin, now a classic example of somebody caught in a sin is an alcoholic, right? Now, Scripture does say that the person who is a drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me ask you the question. They were going to reason here again. Has there ever been a Christian who has fallen off the wagon and became an alcoholic again? Yes. yes, there has been. I'm sure there has been. I've talked to them. They profess Jesus Christ, but they just can't seem to stop. That's where Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. They will even admit to you, this is totally wrong. They're not taking the bottle and saying, I can do this and God will forgive me. No, they're not saying that. They're saying, no, I have sinned and I don't know how to stop. Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual are supposed to get that individual and restore them and all the time watching yourself lest you are tempted as well. And so there are those who are Christians that fall to a sin that are supposed to receive help that get restored when in fact they have always been believers. And so we see what the passage does not mean even though the clear language of it seems to indicate we all stop sinning. Sinning is not a part of our lives when we get saved. Now, I'm going to make this point too. I would make the case, at least seemingly so, that we are unable not to sin. And you might say, now wait a second, 1 John chapter 3 tells us we'll stop sinning. Remember Romans chapter 7. I quote this one often, where the apostle Paul, he starts talking about the struggles that he has and he struggles with some different things. One of them, <clears throat> I believe, is railing sarcasm. I think the Apostle Paul was smart. He was a scholar. And he could deliver a biting line whenever he wanted to. And he did that a few times in Scripture. Now, this is not foreign to God. God did this in Amos. And I've quoted this one to you before as well. I seem to be saying that a lot today. But there's so much information that we need to be reminded of. This idea that in the book of Amos... There were women who were overfed and unconcerned, and they would call to their husband and say, bring me more drinks. And God himself delivered a biting, a stinging insult to the women, called them fat cows on the hills of Bashan, is what he called them. Now, I don't recommend anybody say that to anyone at any time, but if God wants to do it, that's his prerogative. And the Apostle Paul was the same thing, you whitewashed sepulcher, t telling that the Pharisees, saying, you guys are full of dead men's bones, but on the outside, you look just fine, you look just perfect. <clears throat> and so maybe he used that at a particular time. We, we know that he had a physical infirmity, but those things that he wanted to do, he could not carry out. It seemed like there was this battle that was going on. For what I do, verse 19 of Romans chapter 7, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. No, if I do not do what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work in, within my members. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying that he has these two little guys on either side and they're warring back and forth and he wants to do the good but he chooses the evil 
He does the evil, which he calls himself the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul, who wrote probably 13 books in the New Testament. He's saying, I can't get it right. You know, I asked that question of God when I first got saved. I, I felt I just kept on sinning. And I can remember what I was doing. I turned to God and I said, God, why can't I get this right? And it's one of the few times that I've, I didn't actually hear an audible voice, but I got this impression. And this impression was still and quiet. And it was just, you won't. And it was like, what? I won't get it right? No, see, I'm supposed to strive to do what is good. And that's what Paul's doing. He's fighting the fight. He's trying to resist. But he keeps on finding that he fails. And as a result of that failing, he just goes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Jesus Christ will. It's the body, our flesh, with its appetites that says, you will submit to me. Try going without sleep for three days. What will your body do? Your body, I think that there's, I've seen the previews, there's this new movie coming out, uh, Inside Out, a Disney movie, and it has all these little guys in the minds of uh, a man and a woman and kids, and they're directing everything that's supposed to be taking place, and they're the ones that are throwing levers and doing things, make the person do stuff. If your body needs sleep, it'd be like those little people in there just going to all emergency shutdowns. They're grabbing all the levers and pulling them down, and your body says, you will sleep. I'm sorry, you cannot stop it. You're going to hit the wall. You're going to go to sleep. And so your body has its own appetites. If you starve yourself for a little while, you will have hunger pains that will drive you crazy if you go long enough. And it comes back with a vengeance. If you don't have water for thirst, your body will tell you, you need to get some water. So there are those bodily appetites. When we have a new spiritual body, we will not have those same appetites. We will have a life that comes from within and is not sustained by the physical world. And so that's what Paul is talking about here, is we are captive to these bodies as long as we are here and there will be sin even though we desire not to we are so weak that we fail even though God has granted us permission not to he has given us the strength by the power of his Holy Spirit and those two seem to be contrary to one another either he gave us the power or he didn't give us the power which is it well you have to separate the new natures you have this new nature which has been born of God and that nature, I am past the time. We're going to have to pick this up next week. <laughs> you know, you know I, I can't do that because the Sunday school is going to be coming out with knives. And they will sin and I don't want them to, to sin. So please, could you all stand? And I'm going to close in a prayer as the uh, worship team gets ready here. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us with these two natures that dwell inside. We ask that you would give us strength, that we would choose the right way. But we understand that we are frail and and we can't do as we want to all the time. But Father, we know that this gives you an opportunity to show your grace But we also understand that we should not sin that the grace of God might much more abound. I pray that you would make this subject, this battle, even more clear as we get into it next week. And we thank you for your insight and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen.